it's not enough not to be a racist. You have to be an anti-racist. <laughs> so the idea that it's not enough to mentor, you need to be a sponsor. You need to yeah. be proactive and take that mm-hmm. next step. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. I spent some time a few months ago visiting Arizona State University. In some ways, ASU could not be any more different than Dartmouth College, where I usually am. At ASU, there are tens of thousands of students, many students from China and other countries. And Arizona State also has been really a pioneer in online education, one of the most successful in the country. And of course, the ability to deliver high-quality online education has really never been more important in the midst of COVID and school closings. And turns out ASU has been doing this for a bunch of years, which is a pretty good But despite the size and the breadth of what Arizona State University was doing compared to Dartmouth's small focus on liberal arts and a couple of graduate schools like the business school, the tech school, or maybe it was because of those differences, I so enjoyed my visit. Great scholars, welcoming people, and pockets of excellence in all sorts of places. And one of those pockets that I discovered is the Global Sport Institute. When I heard about it, I was interested in learning more. After all, I've had a bunch of people in the world of sports as guests on previous episodes of the SITCAST, you know, Olympic gold medalists like Jillian Apps in hockey. That was the second episode I ever did in season one. Keegan Randall, who won a gold medal in cross-country skiing for the United States. Mark Shapiro, the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays. Sam Kennedy, the CEO of the Boston Red Sox. So yeah, I'm very interested in sports and the Global Sport Institute sounded like something I wanted to learn more about. And the more I learned, the more I knew I wanted to talk to the founding CEO of that Global Sports Institute, Professor Ken Shropshire. Ken Shropshire started at Arizona State after literally 30 years at the Wharton School, and he was doing legal studies and business ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. He was the director of the Wharton Sports Business Initiative, and he actually carries the title uh, Wharton Professor Emeritus. Ken is the first Adidas Distinguished Professor of Global Sport and the founding CEO, as I said, of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University, with multiple appointments in a variety of other schools within ASU. His research has really focused on a wide range of sports-related issues, sports business, sports business law, sports and social impact, race and the law, antitrust issues, contracts, negotiation, and the broader sports industry. Well, you know, every one of those things are in the news every one of these days. And so this is really one of the national leaders in understanding some of the complexity of sports business in all its facets. He's very well published. His work has been published in law journals, Stanford Law and Policy Review, and many others as well, and in a dozen books. So this is a particularly good time to talk to an expert on sports because of what's going on around the world with the opening or attempted opening of various sports leagues. And even more important, the role of African-American athletes in the reawakening and the protests that are going on. Something that Ken, who is African-American himself, has had a front row seat on for decades. So it's a unique opportunity today on the SITCAST and this episode of the SITCAST to talk to someone who's among the most thoughtful in the country on issues of sports and business and race and law. I spoke to Ken in his office in Phoenix, Arizona, on the campus of Arizona State University. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here with Ken Dropshire. Ken, how are you doing? 
Great, Sid. Good to be here. Thank you for taking the time. We're in Phoenix and Tempe on the campus of Arizona State University, where you've been for the last couple of years and really been a leader in the world of sports and global sports. But I want to, I want to start with kind of first principles. Why are you so interested in sports? <laughs> you know, I, I always answer that, probably jumping too far ahead, saying that I wanted to be a professional athlete. You did. I did, yeah. So did I, but look at me. <laughs> well, well, hey, look, don't look, laugh look, that look loud. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank goodness this is pod, not video. So, <laughs> But no, I did. And I can't remember a time early in life when that wasn't number one priority. And so I was fortunate enough to, I was a great high school football player. Yes. All city, all state in Los Angeles. And uh, I got a scholarship, accepted one at Stanford and went there to, and as academic as that might sound, mm -hmm. my decision was Stanford had gone to the Rose Bowl, and this will reveal my age, in 71 and 72, and I was going to college in 73. So in my mind, I'm going to a place to play football. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the great fortunate moments of my life right. that I, I went there instead of, I don't want to below any other school, sure, but, but that I went there. And, a and top, the, top university. Yeah, and the academic opportunities were there. Because it turned out probably about sophomore year, and this gets to, to the answer to the question, I realized this is not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I didn't have the, the Michael Jordan kind of afford it. <laughs> but how, to did really you, like, how did you know it wasn't going to happen? Was it kind of obvious? Were you a starter on the team? I was never a starter. Well, I actually did start. Yeah, good point. I, I, let me give myself a little credit. Okay. I did start on the freshman football team. This is back when they had freshman football. So there was a trajectory mm -hmm. that was there. And I was, please tell me, you won't believe this. I was an offensive lineman. I was actually a center. So I was projected to be much bigger than I was at the time, much bigger than I am now. But as, you know, the freshman football team, it, you know, worked fine. And then we had, I think sophomore year, I was still in the lineup as yep. a possible future starter. And then the moment, and I tell you, words matter. After spring training, after sophomore year, each player had an individual conversation with the head coach about their future. Okay. So one by one, you go in there. And I went in there, Jack Christensen, may he rest in peace, Hall of Famer, one of the top uh, 100 players in the NFL, played with Bobby Lane with the D Detroit Lions. He was the head coach of Stanford at the time. And he probably said a lot of stuff that day, but the words I remember were, and this is a precise quote, you will never start at Stanford University. And it was, that was the tone of the whole conversation, though. It didn't it was, sound too sugar. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, I started myself a little bit, mm -hmm. but only in the moment. I was, and he actually said that the Hudson Houck, who was the offensive line coach, went on to have a great pro coaching career, says you'll never start at Stanford University, but mm -hmm. that's all I heard. So I said, as a 19-year-old would respond, he says, what do you think about that? And I said, mm -hmm. well, it sounds like I need to change positions. So I ended up changing positions, and it was sort of downhill from there, trying to learn a new position and new coaches and that sort right, of thing. Right, right. So that was a moment where, you know, I did start to think. I had always thought that I would be, I'm very careful in saying this now, in the moment I had in my mind, I would be like O.J. Simpson, that I would be a... The former O.J. <laughs> the former O.J., yes. that I would be a great football player professionally, and then I would go into broadcasting. Hmm. I mean, that's sort of what O.J. was doing, so that's kind of the model that's out there, you know, the former, before the later life. So that model went by the wayside, but what was happening was there were a number of people that were going to law school and then looking to represent athletes. Hmm. And for me, it was the way I said, oh, well, here's a way I might stay involved in sports, Turned out a number of guys on the team were pre-law. I hadn't figured out what I was going to do. I was going to major in communications, but that kind of went by the wayside. Yeah. So I actually, for some reason, you know, just again, the good fortune of life, I had taken an economics class, 
did okay. And I said, huh, can you go to law school if you major in that? So that was kind of the, the initial steps to get me to think about it. And I took a sports economics class at oh, some yeah. point, an early version of it. Yeah. And that got you excited to got, see what to see what the other opportunities were to think about right. sport differently and didn't have a game plan, a very straightforward game plan. There weren't a lot of sports lawyers. There wasn't a lot of academic work in sport, but just started on that path. And so you went to Columbia Law School, right? After, I did. Right after Stanford? Right after. And your plan was to go into the sports business as an attorney when you started? That was the plan, yeah. Were there any classes on that topic? No. Professors no. that had connections? I mean, New York no. City is the center of the world, so. There was not. I mean, a, a contracts professor, William C. Young, directed me to someone at the, and he called it, I'll never forget, he called them the New York Football Giants. So I met somebody that he knew <laughs> at the New York Football Giants and had a conversation. But no, in all the job placement service that was provided by Columbia and otherwise, no sports yeah. guidance at all. So all of that, the lawyers out there will know there's a directory called Martindale and Hubble. It's evolved into something different now, but it was these big volumes mm-hmm. that listed all the law firms around the world, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. And there was a little bit of indexing and you could find the words sport in some law firms and yeah. the description of what they did. Huh. So I scoured those volumes and looked for firms that, that did some sports and sent out. And, and this was real work, kids. At the end of the day. This is real work. First of all, you were looking at a physical book. A physical book. Right. You weren't Googling this. It didn't pop no, up you, with you your answer. search. You know, page by page, page by page. By page. No and, and then when you found them, you actually had to write them a letter or something like this yeah, or call on them. A, on you. a typewriter with whiteout. I mean, sort of all that sort of. And this is not, you know, the 19th century. It's not that long. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, really, to think no, about. No. And I sent out before Thanksgiving of my first year, I sent out about 50 letters to yeah. law firms introducing myself and saying I was interested uh-huh. in the sports space. And not all of them had sports. And it actually turned out the, the law firm that I got a job at my first summer didn't have sports work. But I did hear from a number of law firms that said, contact us after your first summer. We only take second years. And it was there that I made a contact with a firm, which was then called Manette Phelps, Rothenberg & Tunney, that represented a number of sports facets. And one of the not yet partners at the firm was a guy named Steve Greenberg, who was Hank Greenberg's son. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so he represented about 50. Hank Greenberg, legendary baseball player. Exactly. He represented about 50 baseball players. The firm also mm-hmm. represented Jack Kent Cook, who, who owned uh, the, uh, the fabulous forum in L.A., right? That's right. He owned the forum, the Lakers, the Kings, and had a piece of the, we will call it the Washington Football Club, which he later, via a divorce, which this firm uh-huh. that I went to handled, ended up having to sell off all of that, the L.A., franchise interest and then went full focus on the Washington football interest. It seems like today many people in the world of sports have law degrees. I mean, now we're seeing the analytical folks. So the data geeks are coming in. But for a long time, law seemed to be the natural pathway. Do you think that's right? And why is law so important? It's not like you're negotiating all the time. Sometimes, and I'm even talking about people in the sports business of, you know, general management or, you know, in the operations of sports. It is now. I mean, it's interesting. If you look at the very top of leagues early on, the first commissioner of baseball was a judge. So he's a lawyer judge, you know. Mountain Kennesaw Landis. And in between that time, the most prominent commissioners, Jim Thorpe was the first commissioner of the National Football League Mm -hmm. in its earlier versions. Burt Bell was kind of the next one. I'm not sure that he was a lawyer. And the Pete Rosell was a PR guy. But after that, then Larry O'Brien was the first kind of noted commission of the, mm-hmm. the National Basketball Association. May have been a lawyer, big political, which was kind of a job. 
But now almost across the board, if you think about it, Paul Tagliabue. He was a lawyer. Uh, lawyer. David Stern. Yeah. Adam Silver, now they're both these NBA guys. Right. Gary Bettman with the National Hockey League. Right. So we got a little detour with Roger Goodell in the NFL <laughs> now. And Rob Manfred, now the commissioner of baseball, is a lawyer. So yeah, yeah. lawyers at the top and lawyers. There is a mode, and we're seeing this amongst teams too, of former agents becoming managers. That's the New York Mets, right? Is it a general manager uh, was an agent? Van, Van Wagner. Yes. Uh, the guy from the, he's actually a Stanford guy, but he was an agent and a number of teams are talking about that model. A number huh. of used it. Arn Tellum in basketball was a lawyer. Now he's the president of the Detroit Pistons. So there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. So going back to when you started, were you representing management or players in the early days? Well, the interesting thing is a young associate. Yeah, you weren't representing anyone. You were doing <laughs> I, the grunt work. I for, took the for business partners. I gave. I will tell you the most fun things that I did then, you know, and I'll have the teams and the players mixed up, but there was some compensation that was owed for the signing of Kareem Abdul Jabbar by the Lakers from the Milwaukee Bucks. Think about that, how long ago that was. Yeah. And there had to be a settlement in terms of what was going to be awarded. So we were engaged in that. And I kind of did some research and the ultimate answer on these questions. We, we did it again with Bill Walton from Portland to what was then the San Diego Clippers. And the question is, what should the team that lost this great player get as compensation? Mm-hmm. This was before pure free agency. Mm-hmm. There had to be some compensation awarded by the commissioner. And the first answer you give in those questions is we want the player back. And then you kind of, you know, if you think about in the negotiation, you throw out something that's really far out there that you won't get Mm -hmm. and try to get the fallback. So that the incorporation of Steve Garvey. I was involved in that. Steve Garvey was a the great Dodgers baseball player for the Dodgers. Player. A number of things like that. And Steve Greenberg said represented 50 baseball players. He would give bits and pieces of stuff for us to do, the young guys at, yeah. at the time. Right. So I was there for a couple of years. And I tell people, just for youngsters, these things happen. Mm. I had trouble passing the bar. Mm. And so as I was kind of stumbling through that, it was another moment in life where I said, well, okay, what are you going to do if this doesn't happen? I, you know, you ultimately passed, but you're in these moments. You say, well, this, this may never happen. Right. What am I going to do? Yeah. And it turned out the Olympics were coming to town. The 84 Olympics had been awarded to L.A., and I set my sights on getting a job there. I said, regardless, that would be great. That would be great fun yeah. to do that. Yeah. So I started trying to get a job there and was fortunate with you know some stumbles along the way to get a job. And essentially, I was a lawyer there negotiating sponsorship and licensing deals for the official whatever of the games. So that was the job of a yeah, lifetime. Job of a lifetime. Yeah. And I still say that was the, you know, I was 25, six, whatever I yeah. was. And we had too much responsibility as mm-hmm. kids at the time. The, you know, I look back at it, you know, age you know, is all relative, but the men, and it was largely men who were in charge. Yep. Peter Ubroff at the time was you know, 40-something. He was president of the mm-hmm. organizing committee. Harry Usher was around the same age. And then almost the whole staff, mm-hmm. it was like a political campaign where these kids that were mm-hmm. excited about getting the Olympics in would work around the clock, and we were all, of course, underpaid <laughs> in doing so, but we had the chance to travel around the world mm-hmm. and just do all these different things yeah. to make the, the games happen. Before the, you know, once we signed up all the sponsors, I had this amazing opportunity presented to me and they said, we need somebody to run the sport of boxing. 
during the games. I knew nothing about boxing. What does that mean to run? <laughs> well, think about it. That's it's, what you asked. So, like, what do you want me to do again? So, so these are, those games, there were 23 sports. For each sport, there was a commissioner who was a highfalutin business person that sort of, the theory was, actually, if there weren't enough funds, this business person would have enough pride to fund the sport themselves. <laughs> so they were engaged to that extent. But for each sport, there was an assistant vice president of the sport that's really in charge of the day-to-day operations of what turns out to be, for most of the sports, a two-week event. Yes. So it's to manage, secure the venue. Depending on how early on you got, you had to do the entire planning, mm-hmm. figure out what venue it should be in, uh, make sure everything's right in terms of transportation for the athletes, to make sure... You have a competition director that is certified by the international sport governing body. So, so it is to run everything. We had, during the games, we had 2,100 employees, largely volunteers, largely ushers who we had to find ways to make them desire to come back every day. You know, eventually it hits you. Wait a minute. Why am I coming here? And all they're doing is giving me a free lunch and a t-shirt, a little trinket every day. It was that sort of thing. And it was, uh, more fun than I realized in the moment. It was a lot of things happened. It's the first time that mainland China had come to the game since 52, since Melbourne, hmm. because of all the political crises amongst countries in China. So to see that Chinese delegation all dressed in red, I still have a vivid memory. You do remember that. it. The staging for the opening ceremonies was in my venue, the sports arena, which was next to the LA Memorial Coliseum. So all the athletes were there. Mm-hmm. We did accidentally hang I can't remember which country it was, one flag that was across the top of the facility upside down. And whoever it was from that country told us we had to find a way to write the flag as the event was yeah. going forward. So, wow. so a lot of great stories. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, that type of experience is, there's no playbook for a thing like that. You kind of have to figure it out in real time on your own. And there's a lot riding on it. And so the learning must have been through the roof, learning that uh, you can take for the rest of your career, really, right? Through the roof, for sure. And we were at a tremendous disadvantage. Each Olympic Games does have an organizing committee. And usually, traditionally, the new organizing committee goes directly to the previous organizing committee and says, hey, can we have your books and records on how to do this? And each sport will get that information. Mm -hmm. So if you think back, so 84 was L.A., 1980 was Moscow. Ah, yes. So Moscow did not share any information with us. So we had to go back to 76. In Montreal. Montreal. And no, it wasn't all in French, but Montreal was very helpful. It was in both languages, actually. Very helpful. But it was, if you think about it, then it was dated. It was eight years old. Right. So. Right. But yeah, it was, I think about, you know, leadership in what essentially was the crisis deadline oriented work that was going to see be in full view of the world and what the leaders did in in those moments. So it's fascinating to think about how these then 40 year old men kept us engaged and focused and on time and some interesting techniques that I will always remember and I've utilized from. For for example, Uh, any kind of thing that they did that, I mean, I can imagine it's not hard to motivate a bunch of 25 year olds or whatever they were because of the, your responsibility. Yeah. And the stage that you described is the top of the top. So you're, yeah. you're energized. You see this in politics a lot. I don't know how much you see it in business, the countdown of how many days are remaining and mm-hmm. how much that was. So the election or a primary or what? Yeah, that's right. So this mm-hmm. was a great, you know, until opening ceremonies there, I knew every day how many days there were remaining. Yeah. And then eventually you do how many see hours. it in some other venues. There was a Netflix series that had that as the premise. And 
mm. looked at six or eight different things. One was opening of a major restaurant. Another one was this gigantic fashion show in Paris and all the various steps. Another one was a big rock concert. And there are all these steps. I mean, the Olympics are bigger than all of those, of course, right. <laughs> but the attention and behind the scenes and so many things break down or not working. I remember in the restaurant example, there was, this was in New York City and they had to get the gas turned on. They didn't want to do it. They didn't want to turn on the gas because they had various bureaucratic approvals. And in New York City, it's a tough place to do business. There's right. so many regulations. And so it was like last minute. You can't have a restaurant. The gas doesn't work. <laughs> and they're coming out with contingencies on opening night of how to serve this high-end restaurant without gas. There are no contingencies. So right. there are some interesting examples. And I think the people that work in those scenarios like you did, I think that experience is spectacular. I, I wish we could think of ways to create those opportunities for young people in school or just leaving school. And I think it's actually a good lesson for bosses, for leaders who are thinking about having, who have great talent and want to accelerate their learning. You know, you're rolling the dice a little bit because yeah. not everyone's going to be able to do it as well as maybe you'd like, but uh, you guys all did. Yeah. You've got me thinking about this though. My first, when I see the second encounter with, with the president of the committee then, I was working late one night. And for some reason, whatever the project was, mm-hmm. I was one of the only ones in the area. And I see Peter Ubroth walking down the hall. I told him this years later, and he thought it was hilarious that he said this. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, here's the boss. Yeah. And he says to me, work smart, not long, and just kept walking. That's all he said. <laughs> That's all he said. By. Yeah. <laughs> this was a management by walking around. And that was his one. <laughs> That's uh, actually very wise advice, isn't it? Oh, it is. And I tell people who work for me now that same thing. You know, I'm really a fan of, in the sports space, Tony Dungy, in his uh, coaching experience, was famous for, you got to focus on the family. You got to make sure family remains first. You figure out how to balance this so we win. But you also mm-hmm. have the strong family life. So in doing so, he was the anti, you know, name your favorite coach, Dick Vermee, all these guys who are famous for sleeping in the office around the clock. Right. And that's right. something he, he right. sent people home. So, and I did not think of in the moment of Uberoff as being this, you know, kind of humane guy, but, I, but I'm pretty sure yeah. that what he was saying, you know, kind of mm-hmm. pace yourself. Mm-hmm. Cause you're already working there. long. No doubt about it. There's no way around that. There's a countdown is going, but you know, there's only 24 hours in a day. Yeah. And so you got to be smart about it. You know, it also reminds me of in season one of the Sidcast episode 49. Amazing. I could remember that. <laughs> Very it, good. Yeah. Cal Newport was my guest, who's a professor at Georgetown. He's written a bunch of books on working and careers. And when he was a student, actually at Dartmouth, he wrote a book where he interviewed all these top, top students, like Rhodes Scholar level almost students. And he wanted to know how they did their work. And he realized they were not working as long as the next tier of really great students, but not the cream of the cream of the crop. And the answer was that he discovered, and he wrote about this in some of his early work, is that they, in a nutshell, they were working smart. They were extremely focused, ultra intense focus. They they didn't have all the gadgets around. Like, you know, you talk to kids and they have the TVs on, the computers on. The phone is there and they're doing their homework. And hey, dad, we're multitasking. That's called underperforming. That's what that is. And he wrote all about that. And so it's very much in line, kind of looked at the science of it and how to develop that intensity and a few other tricks of the trade as well. So you've touched on all the sports really, or almost all the sports in your career, but you've been talking about Olympics. And I want to raise something about Olympics because your focus today is very much on global sport. And Olympics is the kind of the classic global sport. So first of all, why are the Olympics such a big thing? Why does the world stop almost? And not just in America, but in a hundred other countries. I mean, is this just nationalism and national pride? And this is, and maybe more generally, why is sport so important to us, to people? Why is it so important? 
Well, on the Olympics, and I don't want to disagree with you. Go, on, go right on, ahead. On the, on the, <laughs> I want to, I guess, qualify sure. where the Olympics are now because you and I remember how much bigger the Olympics were in the United States when it was the USA versus the USSR mm-hmm. and the German Democratic Republic and, mm-hmm. and sort of the, the enemy that it was somehow we were, we fully translated, especially fifties through seventies, mm-hmm. this cold war stuff onto yeah. the yeah. sports field. And what was big, which does not happen as large now mm-hmm. was the medal count. And you would see who's winning in terms of medals Mm -hmm. and the trickery of broadcast. A lot like uh, people may remember the Iowa caucuses where there were all kinds of ways to calculate who the winner was, which caused confusion. So in the medal count, it's it's overall medals. It's, you know, sometimes it's gold medals is what's important. Mm -hmm. But there was always a measurement of of who's winning overall. And are we beating, and we did wrongly refer to the Soviet Union as the Russians, are we beating the Russians? Mm -hmm. Are we beating East Germany, Mm -hmm. the German Democratic? Republic. And then as the Berlin Wall fell, that kind of, that high level of nationalism Mm -hmm. did fall. Mm -hmm. And I think the interest in the Olympics in that kind of way fell. The other thing that happened, and I forget exactly what year the change took place, late 80s, early 90s, is when the Winter Olympics were staggered. It used to be the the Summer and Winter Olympics were in the same year. And then they do kind of a a rotating four years. So really, it's every two years there's an Olympics. So instead of a big Olympic year, and I don't think it worked in the way that anybody anticipated, Mm -hmm. but I think resource-wise, it was something that was necessary. But so having said that, it's still a huge deal around the world. Yeah. But I think in the U.S. there's there's a different, not quite the same. There's a different, yeah. There's a different yeah. understanding of what the games. Maybe are. Maybe it's bigger in other countries. Oh, for sure, it, it is. And the sports that are dominant in the Olympics are bigger in other countries too. From track and field, the, mm-hmm. you talk to track and field athletes in the U.S. Yeah. The crowds, the fee, the appearance fees they receive mm-hmm. and the like are much greater overseas. I was on the board of USA Volleyball. Volleyball globally is right up there as a top sport yeah. for people to go view and you know, Czechoslovakia, Italy, sort of all yeah. these places have always been. And, and here it's our work. top three or four sports, yeah. you know, leagues. And in other countries it's a little bit different. You said something now I want to ask you about appearance fees. So there was a day when the Olympics were for amateurs. That's right. And I think if you got I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you got appearance fees, you were no longer an amateur, you cannot compete in the Olympics. And I know you've written about and talked about college athletics, where I don't know whether we'd say it's an amateur, but you're not supposed to get paid. You might get a scholarship, but you're not supposed to get paid. And schools, many of them are making an incredible amount of money off of this. And you've been outspoken about that. So could you say a little bit about, I mean, there are two different arenas entirely. And of course, Olympics now, professional athletes are in the NBA players are in the Olympics, NHL players when they're allowed are in the Olympics, etc. And I think in college sports and college teams in America, it's just the early days of change. So can you help us think about, you know, how should we think about that? What's right and what's wrong here? And Yeah, that, that's a great question. And for those trying to make their decision on, I mean, like, it's colloquially pay for play, that this whole idea of should college athletes be paid. I think it is important to, if you have not looked at the history, to take a moment yeah. to think about it and think about the genesis of amateurism mm. uh, within those two bodies you're talking about, within the Olympic sports yes. and within college sports. Yeah. So if you look back to the first modern Olympiad, 1896, Baron Pierre de Coubertin says, hey, we haven't had the Olympics in a long time. Mm-hmm. Let's bring this back. And and he latches on to what's going on in 
Victorian England certainly earlier, and that is there is a sector of society that's able to participate in sport for the glory of sport alone yeah. without compensation. Mm-hmm. So, and these are rich people. And, and the, these are rich people. Very <laughs> right. important. And there's actually within the clauses that set up these clubs where this participation takes place yeah. that says mechanics and artisans, basically, you know, working stiffs yeah. cannot be a part of our leagues. Yeah. And largely it's because we don't want to compete with somebody whose job it is to use their body to be more fit than us. So there's going to be the separate. That's what's said, but it's probably just it's a, quite a class thing. Exactly. It's quite a statement about class. And it goes back also quite related is, you know, if you have to work for a living, then you're actually not in the upper classes. Yeah. How could you participate with us? I mean, it's, and you think about it in the States for sure. You know, your local country club may or may not have some degree of this, mm-hmm. depending if you've got to pay $200,000 to be a member, then it's probably not for everybody. And there, right. There but I you know in America, working and making it is the classic goal and myth and but it is true there was a time when inheritance was considered the honorable way to have your wealth and not to work for it which well, I think, is so, so wrong in so many ways but that <laughs> but, was but think royals right I mean, think of what we've seen in recent months with the, the royals and how you know megan and harry can yes. still survive you know so all that doing okay there's yeah. money that that exists and but think about here in this country the so bank. that's where the amateur ethos came from for the olympics that, that's right i never knew that that's really interesting and baron period at cooper 1896 and if we're going to be you know, pure business schooly and think about you know he's going to create a business what's the best thing he can do and this is not what he said but mm-hmm. but he did latch on to yes. an ancient greek society that that never existed we found but he portrays this ancient greeks running around with fig leaves and you know participating in sport for the sure. glorious sport All right and he says we're gonna host the olympics and but to participate you have to be an amateur and then he provides this definition. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, uh, actually one of the first academic projects I took on, it turns out there's a book by an ancient Greek scholar, a scholar of ancient Greece, David C. Young. And the name of the book is The Myth of Ancient Amateur Greek Athletics. Wow. And he says, regularly prizes were awarded worth a lot of money in mm-hmm. ancient Greece in athletic competitions. And he talks about the value of gold wreaths that were worn by the victors in amphora, whatever an amphora of oils that were awarded for, yeah. for victory. He says, not only that, but there is no word in ancient Greece for amateur. There is no, there is no word even. Yeah. So this myth then becomes part of the foundation of this first Olympiad. And I tell people, I've never been able to look into this, I haven't taken the time, any interested scholars, please go and look at this for us. So think about it. the NCAA, the first version of NCAA starts Olympiad 1896, NCAA 1902-3. So right, very okay. close in time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there was ever a, you know, this would be a great play for somebody, right? If there was some secret encounter uh, <laughs> by these folks. So, so you asked sort of a great question, you know, why is there this similarity? So college sports prior to this moment, even after the idea of their, their boat races, for example, between Yale and Harvard, where the winners won hundreds of dollars, there was this kind of competition. But in the midst of a meeting where Teddy Roosevelt actually called to prevent, there were a lot of deaths in college football. People were killed by different kinds of plays that don't exist anymore. He called a, a summit among the leaders of college sports at the mm-hmm. time, Columbia, Penn, sort of all these schools that mm-hmm. are not leaders anymore, and said, what are we going to do? And within that meeting, after that meeting, the NCAA, the early versions of it, grow. And they also said, you know, we need to stop students from going from school to school. We need to stop these payments. So all this emerged. Mm-hmm. And the best reason to stop it rather than 
and saying, hey, this is going to cost schools a lot of money if we compete for these athletes, mm-hmm. was to grab onto amateurism. So I say how say because it's very important for people to get to the point to say, okay, amateurism is a myth. So now let's look and see today mm. why wouldn't we allow especially in college sports mm-hmm. where there are these now billions of dollars, the NCAA basketball tournament, for example, why wouldn't we allow any of that to go to the actual labor that yeah. delivers this? And similarly with the Olympics, which has gone way further than college sports, it was around the 80s when the Athletics Congress in the United States first allowed, which is now USA Track and Field, which first allowed mm-hmm. those athletes to uh, receive funds is for endorsements for appearance fees but they had to keep them in a trust and they could draw down money for mm-hmm. living mm-hmm. and then pretty soon that all blew up in every sport says if you can make it you can still participate in the olympics mm-hmm. some variations within the, the governing bodies of each sport yeah and so the last place on the planet where there is still a strong definition of amateurism is the ncaa regulations so that's kind of the last place that, right. that exists and that so that clearly provides a huge advantage to universities who make a lot of money off of this and use some of the money to pay head coaches millions of dollars and right. certainly football head coaches, maybe in basketball, I don't know, but in football in the top universities and players are making nothing. I mean, that seems like a moral failing. Right. And just to be the devil's advocate. So we keep, well, I'm players sure you've are, gotten a lot of pushback uh, players on are, this. Players are getting uh, an education. So their tuition fees, room and board, at least the opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. So that's what people need to contemplate. But, you know, my conclusion on this is the following. There's nothing wrong with paying athletes. Logistically, it is a difficult question to try to figure out how to properly do it. Mm-hmm. And I think Morally, the real question is not about amateurism. It is if you bring in these young men and young women, 17, 18 year olds into a college or university, mm-hmm. the primary question should be, are we working to give them an opportunity to earn a meaningful degree? So whether mm-hmm. you have them make full focus on football, basketball, whatever the sport may be, is there a lifetime scholarship, for example, that would allow them to come back after they devoted time to the sport and they mm-hmm. haven't devoted enough time to the education to have some sort of plan that allows that level of success because no matter how long how successful you are the average time nfl for a player is three and a half years so you're done playing on average when you're 28 years old mm-hmm. there's a lot of life left and you got to figure out what you're going to do so the post-career journey ties in very closely with what is it we should be doing at the college level for these men and women that participate in sport Right. And so you think about that. Universities are good at education and lifelong education has become kind of common thing in a lot of universities. I can imagine a package offer to athletes where, yes, you want to get that degree while you're going to school, that while you're in university and competing, but that our commitment to you will not end there. You can come back for free tuition, take any class you want, but we'll also create various programs to help you get ready for that transition to another career. Because not everyone's going to be a broadcaster. Not everyone, in fact, the vast majority of players after their three, let's say the NFL, after three and a half years in such a physical, violent sport with a lot of new data coming out um, and recognition coming out about concussions, what happens to all those people? Have you seen that data? Have you worked on that side? For the average 28-year-old that did not get the incredible contract that we always hear about for the Patrick Mahomes and, yeah. uh, and you know. So I, we are working on that a lot. And yeah. there, there hasn't been enough work on that. There's a great book called uh, Springboard by my former colleague Richard Schell at, at Wharton 
who looks at this issue of how are people successful? Yes. What does it take to be successful? And he opens the book talking about what most of us are able to do, and it's to have our journey. That, that, you know, as I was describing earlier about, you know, I was going to be a football player, I was going to do this, do, mm-hmm. do that. What happens with these elite athletes is they miss out until they are 28 years old yeah. on that journey mm-hmm. to try different things out, mm-hmm. to think about what they really want to do. Mm-hmm. Because as us failed athletes realize, part of the reason why we weren't successful if we had the physical tools was we were not focused enough on having that success. Mm-hmm. And most of these men and women that, that I've interacted with that have been successful, mm-hmm. they have that single focus. There's certainly those exceptions. Yeah. There's certainly those that are able to kind of do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we've been doing, well, one thing we've done is begun to develop kind of an assessment tool to help these men and women think about what they want to do, what they might Mm -hmm. want to do, what they Mm -hmm. would need to complete a degree if they to get where Mm -hmm. they want to go. In some cases, the instrument is with a counselor is designed to dissuade them from being an entrepreneur. So many of these guys and women, because of the success of Magic Johnson or Andre Iguodala or or look at all these people that are entrepreneurs and successful, they say, well, I should do that too. Mm -hmm. Where in fact, especially the guy that plays three and a half years in the NFL, you know, your goal should probably be to be the regional manager of Home Depot. That might be what you can do for a lifetime mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to create a fund and look at investments and yeah, and maybe you can get there at some point. Right. But a journey would dictate that you might try something else, especially if you don't have the characteristics yeah. to be successful. You know, the irony in that is that sometimes I'm sure athletes college level or even that are able to get professional, they'll look at the superstars and that's who they want to be. And that's kind of what you were in college. You wanted to be, you wanted to make it as an NFL player. And you see that. And it's the same thing for people looking at post careers. You know, Kobe Bryant, of course, tragedy a few months ago, but his post NBA career was unbelievable in a very short period of time. Right. Significant private equity business and other businesses as well. And Mike, I mentioned Magic Johnson, a whole bunch. These are the exceptions to the rule. That's Not right. everyone's going to be able to do that. And it's almost like a disservice to actually to most college athletes to encourage them to believe that they're actually going to make it. Even the best of the best, let's say even the stars at the college level, are not necessarily going to get drafted in basketball. I mean, the draft is so small anyways. So there are not that many players on a team. So it's a real long shot. And so coming up with something you can do and to help people, I think is important. You know, at the Tuck School of Dartmouth, and where I am, we have a program been out for a couple of years called Next Step. And it's interesting. It's about half athletes, mostly Olympic athletes, gold medalists or otherwise, but very people with this incredible intensity that have dedicated a decade for sure and longer. And then the other half are actually military officers that also were dedicated. Many of them were Navy SEALs and others that had equal intensity to the world's greatest athletes, just went a different path. And now they're coming back into civilian life, if you will. And they have huge leadership skills and and talent and and they have all kinds of skills, but they don't know much about business. They don't know much about a lot of things because they had to dedicate their lives to get to the level they were at to a small segment of capabilities unbelievably important ones, but not the only ones you need. And I know we're not the only school or program that's trying to do that, but that's really what you're talking about, isn't it? I mean, just creating those opportunities for people to get to the literally the next step. Right. And that sounds like a great program. I've seen bits and pieces of it. Harvard actually just uh, recently, for the past three years, has had a program to, it's called Next Something. So the yeah. next, next yeah, seems yeah. to be a key <laughs> word, focused on athletes and entertainers. And I think the key in all of this is, uh, two keys is the journey is okay, making mistakes along 
along the way is okay. If you get it right the first time, you are the exception. Yeah. And everybody's not an entrepreneur. I'm just kind of going to those. Everyone those. is not an entrepreneur. Well, <laughs> right. That's almost not American. <laughs> <laughs> so we have maybe 15 minutes left and there's a whole bunch of things I want to ask you, but sure. we won't get to all of them. But let me throw a few kind of diverse questions at you about different things I'm interested in. Actually, I just touched on one thing, which is the concussions in the NFL and the NHL as well. That's become is a greater recognition of that. What's your take on that? What do we need to do? What does the sport need to do to address this? Because I don't think the NFL has so far been particularly interested in talking about this very much. Yeah, and I think, you, yeah, that's absolutely right. The NFL has been careful about what they say careful. about it because of litigation, mm-hmm. I think more than anything else. Yeah. I think the equation that is not wholly incorrect that, that people have, have pointed to is the tobacco industry. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, all the documents that are, were later revealed that they knew that cigarettes caused cancer yes. and, and, and kept it quiet. The idea of when did the NFL first know mm. the concussions and the, mm. the equipment and, and all the issues that related to what has now been clearly identified as causing CTE and other, other types of yep. damages. When did you know and did you take steps right away? And that's what a lot of the litigation is looking into. You know, I think the big question, I actually have a call later today with a guy that's running the American Flag Football League, that there is this love of the sport in the United States, not necessarily globally, except Mm -hmm. for the Super Bowl broadcast. But are there safer ways to deliver this sport that that people love? It's, you know, the other issue that comes into play, so flag football, you know, is football without tackling. Yeah, tackling. Is, you know, it's often brought up that, you know, maybe it is all that equipment. That people say, you know, rugby, is, uh, which is, you know, football without equipment, essentially, there are fewer concussions. Eh, there's a lot of data saying that's not necessarily uh-huh. the case. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but it is the case that the NFL has moved to de-weaponize the helmet and you see many more penalties called for. Yes, that's true. For that kind of impact. So there are steps that are being taken. So it does become who's going to continue to participate in this game. And one of the sad stats, and I've looked at the most recent numbers, is the at the college level, you can see it most clearly. You don't necessarily see so much in the NFL, but college level, you see the decline in the number of white players playing football, an increase in the number of African-Americans playing football. And nobody's done the analysis yet, but there is a question of how close is football now looking like the boxing? I was going to say boxing of old in terms of, you know, we used to see the latest immigrant group mm. was a successful group in that sport because it was a path out. And forget about, you know, what we used to call, you know, punch drunk, which I guess is another version of CTE. Mm. Forget about the consequences of mm-hmm. getting hit in the head. This is a way out. So that's really what needs to be looked at. And you need to step back and think about it. And the league, and I'd end up doing a lot of, consulting work with the league. So so I am speaking of someone who could be a strong defender, but I think there's, there's a reality yeah. that, that needs to be faced. The league has taken a lot of steps, needs to continue to take steps, and it, it is a difficult issue. I mean, we got a, what is now a $13 billion business enterprise. Mm-hmm. Actually, you could, but you don't just shut it down. You continue to sell cigarettes. But what do you do? And I think that's what the NFL is trying to figure out. Yeah, it's an amazing thing you just said about the boxing analogy and the fact that more and more football players at college level are African-American. And I think about the military as a different case study, an American military at least, where 
Typically, most members of the military come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talk about America not being a class-based society like we were talking about, you know, the time of the beginning of the Olympics, but sure sounds like it is. And it sure sounds like people that have fewer advantages are the ones that are going into the kind of, there is a lot of damage, a lot of danger in those jobs, in those careers. Right. No, and you see it. You know, there's a little bit of a, an alteration in that data where, although this was the year of the black quarterback, where you see that a lot of the, there's still a lot of activity in suburban America where some of the skill positions in football are learned and it becomes more like, and baseball has become fully like this, just about more like golf and tennis where you need a higher level of instruction to be successful, mm-hmm. which costs much more money. Right. But football continues to, you know, why has there been a decline in the number of African Americans playing baseball and not in football? Part of it is, again, baseball has really become suburbanized in terms of uh, where you get instruction otherwise. And somehow football has survived in the high schools of America. So it still is a flat in terms of who can have the opportunity to yeah. play. Yeah. Now that opportunity also extends to head coaches. And I think today in the NFL, there are two African American head coaches and one Hispanic. Head coach, and there were never a lot, but there was certainly twice as many, or maybe three times as many, not that long ago. And you know, years ago, Bill Walsh, the legendary coach, was he at Stanford by any chance when you were there? Or he was already. Uh, if yes, my biggest disappointment in life, he came the year I left. So he, uh, Jack Christensen, the you know my <laughs> favorite coach that got got fired my senior year, right? And then Bill came in the next. Bill year. came in there, and that was before he went to the San Francisco 49ers because right. yeah. he went back, I think, at yeah. some point. This was his the yeah. first. So the legendary Bill job. Walsh, who I've studied in detail for my research on developing talent right. and super bosses, and he, when you track NFL head coaches in terms of their ability to develop. Other head coaches, he's far and away number one. There's like right. Bill Parcells number two. When you just do the count of who produced the most successful head coaches. And then when you look at African American head coaches, it's Bill Walsh was the first head coach to create development programs for ex NFL athletes that had aptitude interest to become a head coach, happened to be African-American, and had previously not been given that opportunity. And I think he has been rightly credited with the renaissance of more African-American head coaches. And other teams followed his lead, but still were a very low, very low number. And what percentage of NFL players are actually African-American today? I think 78 is the last 78 percent and that's pretty high. It's in the 70s, yeah. So, you know, the question is, what gives here? I mean, what's going on? Well, you know, the again, kind of setting the stage, I don't think we know what the right percentage would be in terms of head coaches, African-American head mm-hmm. coaches. Mm-hmm. It certainly would be more than there is now. Out of 32 to have three or four is not, doesn't strike me as right. Mm-hmm. You know, the only place that number gets close to being right is if we look at the percentage of African-Americans in the country. So there's something in between. And this is kind of the legal issue of you know, what's the right number. Yeah. Uh, so that could be open for debate. But what you do have is a, in all these areas, you hear about the pipeline. So in the National Football League, there is not a pipeline problem in terms of ready people of color in terms of these positions, especially when you look at the last hiring round when one of the hires as a head coach of the New York Giants was a guy named Joe Judge who'd been a receivers and special teams coach, which mm-hmm. was outside of the traditional pipeline of mm-hmm. being an offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator. The Super Bowl, which you know we all got to watch a while back, the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs was Eric Bieniemy, who was a great candidate uh, to be a head coach and 
he didn't get hired. Mm-hmm. And we've all been kind of, those of us who think about these issues, been trying mm-hmm. to imagine mm-hmm. what might have happened in the celebration at the end. Head coach Andy Reid could have said, uh, now the, you know, I'll be especially happy when my offensive coordinator who brought us back in the last six minutes becomes a head coach. You know, what, what kinds of things can we do that haven't been done mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. try to change yeah. the situation? Who can step up and make a difference like Bill Walsh? Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like Bill, like Bill Walsh, who is known to pick up the phone and say, my assistant is ready. This guy's ready. He's ready. And yeah. he would call an owner of another team, which if you think about it, it's a totally crazy idea because you're giving <laughs> some of your best talent to your direct competitors. But he did it. But he did it. Yeah. He did it. For the greater good of society. One of his consultants, Dr. Harry Edwards, the sociologist, sort of, sort of the father of sports sociology, as I said, worked closely with him in thinking about these issues. And I'm sure, yeah. you know, Bill, who was a, as I understand, a constant student, I didn't get to know him very well at all, yeah, yeah. listened to these voices saying, well, you know, your success can rise if there's greater success uh, mm-hmm. in the entire league. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. In fact, you know, the thing we know from non-sports, but there's some business, and especially when it comes to women having opportunities in organizations, it's not enough to have mentors, which it's a good thing. You need sponsors. And a sponsor is someone mm-hmm. who is going to pick up the phone. And a sponsor is going to go and make the case and advocate for you that you should be in the short list in the pipeline, in the shortlist for that next promotion. And you can't just leave it be because consciously or subconsciously, there are all sorts of biases and discrimination. We have tons of endless data about that. So you'd have to have this sponsorship approach. Yeah. And maybe that's what... That's a great, great frame. And I have not seen that used in sport, the, the idea that you need to be a sponsor. There, There's a great book out now. I can't, can't think of the, the author's name, but he quotes Angela Davis, the activist, and says... It's not enough not to be a racist. You have to be an anti-racist. So the idea that it's not enough to mentor, you need to be a sponsor. You need to be proactive and take that Mm -hmm. next step. Mm -hmm. So that's a wonderful thought. I mean, I've been working a lot in in this space and trying to think about, you know, what's next. Is the Rooney Rule, which mandates that any team that's interviewing for a head coach must interview at least one candidate of color. There's a lot of conversation yeah. But but it is interesting yeah. to think about, okay, yeah. all that's fine. Right. Now, if you really want to do the right thing, mm-hmm. think about sponsors. Yeah, and in fact, think like the Rooney Rule, which is perfectly fine. That's a check-the-box thing. Yeah, we got it. We did it. And that doesn't change how people behave. The other thing I'd say about sponsorship is that, so again, we're seeing it exactly that in forward-thinking companies or forward-thinking leaders. And then the last thing I'll say is when you go look for and create opportunities for groups of people, in this case, we're talking about, you know, gender and race, gigantic groups, but it could be any type of group, really, that have not had as many opportunities. You're creating a competitive advantage, actually, from a straight strategy point of view, because you're expanding your talent pool and you're getting talent that others maybe for whatever reason, haven't gotten. And that's going to make you stronger. It's going to make you better. It's actually the smart thing to do. It's not just the good thing, in quotes, to do. Even if you don't care about diversity, even if you couldn't care less, Mm. it's going to make you more successful. And everybody cares about that. And that's the thing that always strikes me as odd when you don't see that sponsorship going on. That's a great theme. That is a great leadership mandate. It is a mandate. It should be a mandate. And it's self-defeating when it's not. Boy, I know we really could go for another another (laughs) hour. This is so interesting. And we do a quick word association. That way I get a quick thought from you on a bunch of different things and then wrap up with two final quick questions. Okay. So you can answer with a single word or a phrase or whatever you want. Kobe Bryant. Sad. Houston Astros. (laughs) Laughter is not my answer. Yeah. You know, my answer now, as I've been thinking about them, it's Stuart Dusty Baker. Ah. Because he's now 
back as the head coach. And I think it was, if you think about great hires in a moment of crisis, yeah. here's a guy who is ethics or couldn't be more clearly understood in mm-hmm. the business. And exactly what uh, an analytics-driven operation needs is a person of sanity who's not anti-analytics, but, right. but is not going to believe just the numbers. Right. A humanist. Yeah, a humanist, <laughs> a person, right. Someone who follows the old analog method of thinking. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think the winning formula is analog and, and digital That's at the right. same time. Some combination. That's yeah. Right. ESPN. Because, you know, ESPN is, talk about an impact, but viewership's going down yeah. because of so many different Yeah, my word is troubled. You know, it's got to find its way. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I can go on and on with that, but there's just a <laughs> I want to have a chance to ask you these two last okay. questions. One is about advice and one is about your partner in life. I'm not sure if you're married or not, but I always ask this question, how you met? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, people love those stories. You know? <laughs> so let me ask you that first, and then I'll ask you the advice question as well. You know, many couples have this problem. You're really putting me on the spot because we have a debate about how. <laughs> ah, how okay. But, There's, you know, you know, ironically, a great story, only that we're not sure. She, My wife was recently inducted into the Stanford Athletics Hall of Fame. Yeah, she's also an athlete. That's so right. I, and she was put the burden on me to introduce her. And so she had to step back and think about this question. When we first met, we actually grew up blocks apart from each other huh. in Los Angeles. And we actually grew up playing our respective sports. And I'm, I'm not making this up on what is now the corner of Obama Boulevard and Martin Luther King <laughs> Avenue. It was, I think the streets were Santa Barbara and Rodeo Road. But they're now, there's now King and Obama. And it literally the, her tennis courts, or adjacent to my football wow. field. So we assume at some point as kids, mm. we saw each other there. But we actually met for sure as undergrads at Stanford. She was two years younger, still is two years younger than me. So she came in as a freshman. I was a junior and she rejected my overtures to her at the time wisely so <laughs> and then we remit some years later oh Stanford. years later in fact yeah, years later because i was not going to touch that hot stove twice yeah <laughs> and we remit and actually she you know and i and believe me ladies and gentlemen there's no ulterior motive she had retired from playing professional tennis returned to la i was at that law firm that i mentioned mm-hmm. earlier and i wanted to learn to play tennis and she was giving lessons so how do you like that yeah. That's a great story. So I ask all of my guests, almost all of my guests, that story, that question. Right. And it's not unusual to meet up with the person you end up with for years and years after an earlier encounter that was, whether it was good or bad, it just was. And, right, and, right. Uh, so the advice uh, question is, imagine you can go back in time to yourself, the 21-year-old Ken, sitting somewhere, maybe on a playing field or in the classroom or the library or wherever you were, and you can kind of cozy up to him and you say, there's one thing you really need to know about life. This is it. What piece of advice would you give to yourself if you can go magically back in time to when you were 21 years old? 21. So what I didn't know then, I understand now, this and I'll, this will be a, to end this on an up note. I didn't understand how abrupt death could be. Hmm. That um, you know, I lost my mother just in, in a, a very quick you know, heart attack kind of moment. You know, that had never happened to me before with somebody that yeah. that close. So you always you know think about, okay, and now I feel like I'm ready for to have a consciousness a greater consciousness, because no matter how much people tell you that until you experience it, mm. you don't realize how rapidly that can go. And that's probably the biggest thing that I think nobody can tell you you have to learn. Yeah, no doubt it extends the type of appreciation you have for your life, for the lives of others, and for your career as well. Every moment counts, doesn't it? Uh, exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, the, you know, the Kobe Bryant incident mm. of a few months ago, yeah, just to 
young, everything ahead of him. And as you were saying, just you could see he was he was getting his footing on, on what life was going to be and seemed. And everybody describes him as, as being so happy about where he was at this point. Yeah. Talk about an impact in different ways. And, right. Well, Ken, thank you so, so much for being on the SIDCAST, sharing your views on a bunch of controversial issues and getting to know you a little bit as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sid. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you Season 2 and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.